Rocky Mountain High Colorado Rocky Mountain High This is Our American Stories, and John Denver's songs have become part of the cultural DNA of this country. His music was simple and honest. There was no edge, no auto-tunes, no flash. Today we challenge you to have a new and even greater appreciation of this man and his music. And we're celebrating his life, honoring his life. He died on this day in history, in 1997. On October 12, 1997, at Monterey Airport, just 100 miles south of San Francisco, one of the world's best-known and best-loved singers took off to test his new plane. The son of a famous Air Force pilot, John Denver had thousands of hours of flying experience. It was a simple flight on a cloudless day. He was 500 feet above the Pacific Ocean and 150 feet from the Monterey Bay shoreline when eyewitnesses heard a popping sound. A second or two later, they watched in horror as the plane plummeted into the sea. He was killed instantly. Aged only 53. John Denver was born in 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico, at the Air Force Base where his father was stationed. It was a far ways away from Denver, but then again, so was his name. Here's John. My real name is uh, Henry John Dutchendorf Jr., and... uh... My father was in the Air Force, and, and we moved around a great deal. And uh, there was one particular period in my life when uh, I was 13 years old, and we moved from Tucson, Arizona, to Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, I was there for one year, and then we moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Here's John's brother, Ron. It was always hard because you were going into a new school, new people. John was a little bit more shy, and so it was harder for him. And the music, especially his guitar, became a way of making friends and being accepted. And I said, I like music, I play guitar, blah, blah, blah. And so they asked me to bring my guitar to class one day, which I did. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, people were saying hello to me in the halls. All of a sudden, people knew me as, another, as more than just another one of the Air Force brats that was coming through every year yeah. through Maxwell Air Force Base. John's father, Dutch Dutchendorf, joined the Air Force in the Second World War and soon became a top pilot. Here again is John's brother, Ron. He flew a number of planes. He uh, actually gave Lindbergh a test ride, and I think it was a B-25 when he was flying those bombers. And then he went on to fly the, uh, the plane that carried all the electronics when they dropped the first atomic bomb to test it. Dutch achieved fame flying a new bomber, the B-58 Hustler. In 1961, he broke six world airspeed records in one day. Six records set by Major Duchendorf and crew, four of them previously held by the Soviets. For this sensitive son of a Cold War warrior, something had to give. At age 16, he took the family car and ran away out west to Los Angeles with a dream of becoming a folk singer. But it didn't work out. His dad jumped into a friend's jet to retrieve his wayward son. Dad flew out there, and they went to Disneyland and SeaWorld and did all these things and then came back, and to me, their relationship was like golden. 
Four years later, John tried again, dropping out of college and hitting L.A. just as the folk boom was at its height. He got a singing gig, and in no time the music execs could see where John's star was headed. But they foresaw complications with his name. One day there was this big heavy meeting, they sat down, they said, listen kid, Dutchendorf has got to go. Has got to go. <laughs> Randy says that they asked him to change his name, and John said, no, I will not give up my father's name. I'm proud to be a Dutchendorf. And Randy said, it won't fit on the marquee. You have to change it. They had a minor hit at the time called Denver, written about this city, and the sheet music was on the wall behind the desk, and they said, you're John Denver. Now with his new name, John Denver set out to make it as a folk singer. The opening came when one of the big names on the folk circuit, the Chad Mitchell Trio, lost their lead singer. Hundreds of young vocalists auditioned for the spot, but John was the obvious choice. Here's Mike Koblick, one of the trio's singers. John was a fine musician, an excellent musician, a very fine 12-string guitar player. There, there was uh, an innocence, I think, in a way, that was believable um, and, uh, and true. The Mitchell Trio's trademark was political satire. John's innocence was on full display. He says, well, I don't know anything about politics. And we looked at him and said, John, it's politics. And he said, that's what I said. I don't know anything about that. The Mitchell Trio's main audience were university students. In the spring of 1966, they were at Gustavus Adolphus, a Lutheran college in St. Peter, Minnesota. In the audience was a sophomore student, Annie Martell. I was 20, and John was 23. Very young, but I thought he was very glamorous, very worldly. He was not at all, but I thought so. <laughs> the two were married in June 1967. John began writing songs and recorded some of them at his own expense, sending the album out as a Christmas present. Track three of the album was called Babe, I Hate to Go. Mitchell Trio producer Milt Oaken liked the tune, but not the title. I said, John, that's a terrible name for a very beautiful song. He said, what would you call it? I said, leaving on a jet plane. He said, but that's the third line of the chorus. You never heard a song named after the third line of a chorus. I said, it's a good name, let's go with it. And he went with it. Here's that original John Denver recording. All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. Milt Oaken passed the song on to another one of his acts, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and it became their first number one hit. With the Vietnam War at its height, the song struck a deep nerve and became a favorite amongst the troops. This is Our American Stories. John Denver's story continues after these messages. There's so many times I let you down So many times I played Cause I'm leaving
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History, a celebration of the life of John Denver and his music. And we return to Greg Hengler. To this very day, leaving on a jet plane strikes a nerve in life and in death. Here's Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary. I'm uh, on the board of directors of the first hospice in America, in Branford, Connecticut, and I sing for the patients. And there was one time that somebody asked me to sing it who I knew was not going to be with us long. And as I sang it, I realized how that lyric of goodbye was like a farewell of sorts uh, in, a, in a more profound and different way in, at the, in the moment where it says, Now, now the time has come to leave you One more time, let me kiss you Close your eyes I'll be on my way And we'll dream about the days to come When I won't have to leave alone About the times I won't have to say Kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me hold me like you'll never let me go I'm leaving on a jet plane don't know when I'll be back again oh babe I hate to go I hate to go In 1968, John decided to pursue a solo career, but his producer, Milt Oaken, struggled to get the record companies interested. So I struck out with John Hammond at Columbia, Wexler at Atlantic, and half a dozen others. And someone at RCA, Harry Jenkins, liked it. John Denver signed with RCA in 1969. His first records were in the classic singer-songwriter vein, but his early records refused to sell. A young talent agent by the name of Jerry Weintraub, who would become a top Hollywood producer, became John's manager. We all got on a rocket ship together, and it was big. It was really big. The song that launched the rocket ship was the classic sing-along song, now known all over the world, Take Me Home Country Roads. It was co-written by two of John's friends from the folk scene, Bill Danoff and Taffy Nivert. Bill and Taffy planned on finishing the song and then selling it to Johnny Cash. Then one evening, John Denver showed up to share songs with his two friends. Here's Taffy. I said, let's show him Country Roads. Bill says it's not finished. I says, well, I know, but you know. Let's just show him what we got. And he absolutely loved it. And in the singing of it, John took the lead 
Bill and I fell in with a harmony and it just sounded so good like that. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. Home Country Roads was a huge hit in the summer of 71, peaking at number two on the charts and selling more than three million copies. Then on March 3rd, 1977, Johnny Cash would get to sing it with John Denver on John's ABC television special, Thank God I'm a Country Boy. I hear her voice in the morning hour she calls me. Radio reminds me of my home far away Driving down the road I get a feeling That I should have been home yesterday Yesterday Country roads take me home To the place I belong West Virginia Mountain Mama, take me home, country roads, take me home, country roads, take me home, take me home, country roads. After the success of Country Roads, John and Annie moved permanently up to the Rocky Mountains and built their dream home in the old mining town turned ski resort of Aspen, Colorado. The year that I moved here, 1970, uh, I was 27 years old and coming to Colorado was, was like coming home for me. I don't know how to explain that except I just felt that this was my home. And in that first summer here, uh, I started really getting into uh, to camping again. And one of them was to a lake across the valley during a, a time in August when there's what is called the Perseid meteor shower. And uh, this is, in my mind, the most fantastic meteor shower of the year. Uh, you don't only see the little flashes of the light. Oh, oh, there was one. Did you see that? And sometimes people do and sometimes they don't. On this occasion, there were balls of fire that would go all the way across the sky smoking. You would swear that you could hear them. In any case, uh, I was camping with some friends at this lake and told them what to expect. And uh, I think everybody was pretty nonchalant about the evening. Everybody I've seen shooting stars, big deal. And so as the evening grew on, uh, we all went to our separate camping areas to kind of quiet down and lie there and look at the stars. I was pretty sure everybody had gone to sleep until all of a sudden one of those came smoking across the sky and everybody, oh wow, did you see that? So we were up all night watching the most glorious display that I've ever seen in these mountains of, uh, of, of meteorites. And uh, with that camping trip and with the feeling of, of coming home here to Colorado to a place I'd never been before, uh, I ended up riding Rocky Mountain High. Here's the hymn John wrote to the Rocky Mountains and his new life there. 
The song went on to become an anthem to the state of Colorado. He was born in the summer of his 27th year Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountains, his life was far away On the road, hanging by song All you had to do was be in Colorado somewhere when he would start singing Rocky Mountain High and I'd swear you could feel the whole state rocking. That song is more than just a pop song, it's now folklore. Of, uh, it's part of our American heritage. Country Roads and Rocky Mountain High were big hits, but John's next move cemented his stardom. Folk music in that day had been serious and earnest, but John's warmth and outgoing personality made him a natural for the small screen. Well, life on the farm is kind of laid back, ain't much an old country boy like me can't hack. Thoroughly to ride, early in the sack, I thank God I'm a country boy. In 1973, Jerry launched the John Denver Show, the series established John's catchphrase, far out. It's far out. You guys have been so great. I thought that's far out. They made my whole day. <laughs> far out. <laughs> well, I got me a fine wife. I got me old fiddle. When the sun's coming up, I got cakes on the griddle. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Thank God I'm a country boy. He was fast becoming one of the biggest stars in American music. And his greatest hits album of 1973 sold over 10 million copies in the first six months alone. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, John Denver's story, here on Our American Story. I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That John Denver's full of it, man. And that's Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber, and we're celebrating John Denver's life on our This Day in History segment that we do with Hillsdale College. And by the way, I've just got to get back to that lyric from Rocky Mountain High. He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to the place... He'd never been before. And I didn't hear that lyric until I just heard it now. And I know we've all had music in our lives, but we've heard the lyrics, and we didn't know what the heck we were listening to until we actually listened to it. And now back to John Denver's story. The Rocky Mountains were John's retreat. While at home in Aspen in 1974, he wrote his most famous song, a love letter to his wife, Annie. You fill up my sense 
like a night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain John and I were in our kitchen and we had had an argument and we had had an argument and then we had sorted it out and he left to go skiing Come there was nobody on the mountain when I started out that day I skied down this very tough run all out of breath I skied right on to the lift I was riding up again sitting there catching my breath looking down at where I'd just been a few moments ago all this physical stuff going on when suddenly I was hypersensitive to how beautiful everything was. The sky was a blue you only see from mountaintops. Then I became aware of the other people skiing, the colors of their clothes, the birds singing, the sound of the lift, the sibilant sound of the skiers going down the mountain. All of these things filled up my senses. And when I said this to myself, unbidden images came one after the other. The night in the forest, a walk in the rain, the mountains in springtime, all of the pictures merged, and then what I was left with was Annie. In the ten minutes it took to reach the top of the mountain, the song was there. It's been wonderful for me because I've heard it in elevators. I've heard it in St. Mark's Square with violinists. My daughter had it played at her wedding. Um, but people still carry that with them, and it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful gift. John Denver's rise to stardom coincided with a bleak time in American life. With the Watergate scandal, gasoline shortages, and the end of the Vietnam War, his simple songs of love and nature struck a chord across war-weary America. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy John's songs offered a refreshing affirmation of kindness in contrast to the steady stream of opposition and protest music that was emptying out of America's radios and turntables but not everyone liked John Denver in the rock music press he was widely loathed here's G. Brown from the Colorado Music Hall of Fame the last interview I conducted with John was in the early 90s, and we got around to the topic of his detractors. Uh, he was called the Mickey Mouse of rock, the Ronald Reagan of pop. What he was angry about was what it meant regarding his fans, the people that had seen a birth of a child to his music or had gotten married to one of his songs, that they were being disparaged. Uh, that angered him. That's what got under his skin. John would sing to 18,000 people and the music critics would just talk about how, how pap his music was and everything. And the last tagline was, but the 18,000 people seemed to enjoy it. There was also those who had a love-hate relationship with John's music. Here's a story from John's friend, Ron Lemire. We're in Lake Powell. We have this... Uh houseboat and we found this beautiful little circular uh, bay you know with, with with about 80 foot cliffs all the way around it like a real natural amphitheater 
right when the sun went down, another boat came in and just parked like about 20 yards away from us. They didn't know who we were. So that night, uh, John wanted to take his guitar and go in the middle of this little bay and sing. And here his voices reflect back to the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the rock. And so he's in the middle of, the, uh, of his songs and he's singing. He's got, these, he's got like three echoes feeding back and he's you know, just having this great time just working with his vocals and some of the songs that he's working on. And then all of a sudden the, the other people in the boat turn the radio up real high just to drown us out a little. And we, and we just started laughing. There was nothing else you could do. It's like, here we are at a concert tour. Thousands of people pay good money to see him. And here he is, a free concert, and they, and they numb him out, right? So we go back and, you know, bunk in for the night. And then the next morning, as we're getting out there, John's in the stern, you know, pulling things, you know, as I'm driving the boat out. And, the, and those people are out on the deck, and they see John, and go, oh, it's John Denver. <laughs> John just, it just like goes off into the sunset. John Denver was a hugely popular entertainer. His concerts often had the reverence of a religious gathering. He put together a stellar band, many of whom played for Elvis, including guitar legend James Burton. He could put the people in the palm of his hand. It, it was just like a one-on-one, -on -one, you know. It was a, the people were right there with him. Now you hear that? That's not Rocky Mountain High. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Mr. Frank I've got you under my skin. I remember the first time they worked together, we did Harris in Lake Tahoe. And when we put the show on sale, the phone lines in the Western United States went down from the reservations. That's how big it was. You know, Frank, I was just thinking, about the time that song was first heard, so was I. <laughs> Sometime during his tenure with the trio, I remember him saying that it was one of his ambitions in life to become as much of a household name as Frank Sinatra. The payoff came years later when I found myself in Los Angeles driving up Sunset Boulevard and looking up and seeing a humongous poster of the two of them with their arms crossed, standing back to back with each other. And I thought to myself, my golly, he made it. But I get a kick, you give me a boot. I get a kick out of you. John was now a superstar. He had his own Lear jet and got his dad to fly it for him. I hope you folks recognize me, but I'm not sure you recognize the gentleman on my right. He's my father, Dutch Dutchendorf. He's been a pilot all his life. He taught me how to fly. Yes, he'd rather be. And back home in Aspen, John's own family started to grow. And he and Annie adopted two small children. Here's Annie. Zach was the first, and he was this little brown, beautiful little boy. 
and then Anna Kate was the second. And John was just thrilled and over the moon that this was happening too, because we'd have a boy and a girl. Stars he makes and, and when we come back, the final segment of our celebration of the life, the music of John Denver, his story, his family's story, the story of his career here on Our American Stories. In the dawn, the subway's coming. In the dawn, I hear him humming. Some old song he wrote of love in Boulder Canyon. Guess he'd rather be in Colorado. When I was just a wee little boy Full of health and joy One Christmas morn and I received A marvelous little toy A wonder to behold it was With many colors bright And the first time I laid eyes on it It became my heart's delight It went zip when it moved Bop when it stopped Brrr when it stood still I never knew just what it was And I guess I never will This is Our American Stories, and now we return to the final segment of the life of John Denver. John also utilized his talents in Hollywood. His first feature film was Oh God. John played Jerry Landers, an assistant manager in a supermarket who receives a visit from God, played by George Burns. Reluctant to believe the old man is really God, Jerry needs proof. Here's the automobile scene with John Denver and George Burns. I see you know a lot of things, and, and, and you've been making a lot of things happen, but, but none of it seems... Godlike? Yeah, godlike. And what to you would be godlike? Uh, change the weather. Ah, special effects, huh? What would you like, a little, a little earthquake, uh, a small hurricane? Well, no, no, I, I wouldn't want anybody hurt. I was just thinking maybe, uh, what about a little rain? A little rain? Yeah. Uh, a small shower. One small shower, you got it. Hey. Hey, it's raining. You made it rain. You didn't even bat an eye. You, you didn't have to lift a finger. Rain's not that hard. It's unbelievable. Would you like it to rain a little harder? No, no, this is fine. How about bigger drops? No, this is fine, fine. Would you care for a little snow? This is fantastic! Thank you. It's just like Noah's Ark. The same thing, without the smell. The film was well received by critics and was regarded by many as one of the best films of 1977, including Gene Siskel, who placed it on his top ten list for the year. Roger Ebert praised the casting of Burns in Denver and noted that, Oh God struck the right tone by avoiding both pious religious platitudes and cheap shots about faith. Despite his huge success, John Denver had always been prone to insecurity and self-doubt. From the early 70s, he had been involved in New Age therapies, including the controversial self-awareness program, EST, or EST. Here again is John's manager, Jerry Weintraub. I think he had a difficult time with success. I think that was very hard for him. 
because I don't think he knew how good he was. Many, many artists don't realize how good they are. And that's when the darkness comes out. I don't think he ever accepted the fact that he was as good as he was because the critics always were a problem for him. John was one of the first celebrities to use his fame to promote conservation. He formed a firm friendship with legendary French naval officer and underwater explorer, Jacques Cousteau. And uh, I met Captain Cousteau and, uh, and all of the members of uh, the Calypso uh, down in Belize in, uh, in Central America. And I had these words in my head, I, Calypso, the places you've been to, the, the things that you've shown us, the stories you tell. And anyway, the chorus to the song was there in almost the time it takes to say it. During the remaining time that I spent aboard the Calypso, I tried to finish this song. Uh, to be able to sing it for Captain Cousteau and his crew. And for some reason, I was unable to, uh, to in get anywhere close to what I was hoping to say behind that wonderful chorus. And uh, I couldn't finish this song. I just could not find it. One day, I, I gave up after spending sleepless nights and, and literally, <laughs> at least it felt like sweating blood trying to finish this song. And I went skiing across the valley at Snowmass, made a couple of runs, and all of a sudden there was inc this incredible tension to get back home and, and, and to work on the song. And so I skied down to my car. It takes about 20, 25 minutes to drive from Snowmass back here to the house. And in that time, the whole rest of the song was there for me. It just came almost out of nowhere. I came to the house, I walked upstairs in the studio, picked up my guitar, and I had the song. One of the best songs I think that I've ever written, one that I still use to to close my concerts today, Calypso. To sail on a dream on a crystal clear ocean To ride on the crest of a wild raging storm To work in the service of life and the living In search of the answers to questions unknown To be part of the movement Part of the growing, part of beginning to understand. I could so the places you've been to, the things that you've shown us, the stories you tell. I could so I sing to your spirit, the men who have served you so long and so well. Here's Jacques' son, Jean Michael Cousteau. Typical of John and his generosity ultimately gave the revenue of that particular song to the not-for-profit company of my father. And uh, I remember collecting big checks. Sometimes I feel like a sad song. By the early 1980s, John's status as a pop star was fading. Although his albums were still popular, he hadn't had a single hit since Calypso in 1975. His personal life was also in turmoil. His father died in March 1982, and only three months later, on their 15th wedding anniversary, Annie asked him for a divorce. By the mid-1980s, John's star had fallen. When the charity record We Are the World was produced in 1985, John wasn't even invited to participate. He also broke up with his long-term manager, Jerry Weintraub, 
1986, Denver was dropped by RCA, the company for whom he recorded 14 gold and 8 platinum albums in the U.S. alone and sold over 100 million records. In the 1990s, his appearances in the media were more for drunk driving offenses than for his music. But John Denver had a loyal fan base, and he still played sellout shows all over the world. In 1996, John was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, but there was to be no comeback for John Denver. Since learning to fly with his father, he had become a keen pilot, owning a number of high-performance acrobatic planes and flying Air Force F-15 combat jets. On October 12, 1997, he had taken delivery of an experimental kit plane and test flew it at a low level over Monterey Bay in Northern California when the plane crashed into the sea. The accident report concluded that the plane had run out of fuel. John was killed instantly. I've been lately thinking about my lifetime All the things I've done, how it's been And I can't help believing in my own mind I know I'm gonna hate to see it end Seen a lot of sunshine, slept out in the rain. Spent a night or two all on my own. And I've known my lady's pleasure. He represented America at its best and healthiest. He's a wonderful artist and a wonderful writer. And I think his songs will be sung for hundreds of years. They're that good. To say it now, it's been a good life all in all. It's really fine to have a chance to hang around. Here's a story from John's longtime friend, Tom Crum. I'll tell you a little story that, that, that has always meant a lot to me. And this happened with uh, his son, Zach. When he was eight or nine years old, he's on the same little squirt hockey team that my son was on. And they went all the way to the state championships. So there we are in this arena, if you will, this big arena in Colorado Springs. And there's only 65 people in the place, right? You can, it's just parents, but the parents are so pumped. The game's about to start. John doesn't know what he's going to do, but I know he needs to contribute. He stands up impromptu, turns his face to the audience, and sings the national anthem. You know, no music accompaniment, nothing, just did it for those 60 people. We all stood up, saluted the flag, put our hands on our heart. It was incredibly moving. We won that game, went to a pizza restaurant that night. He bought everybody, the parents, all the kids dinner. He was so excited. Again, always wanting to contribute, however. And then he bought everybody else in the restaurant dinner. Here again is John's producer, Milt Oaken. The arc of his career was like that of an eagle taking flight. People have said that what Sinatra was to the 1940s, Elvis to the 1950s, the Beatles to the 60s, John Denver was to the 1970s. His music was powerful and his message was so positive and compassionate 
It's refreshing to hear it again today. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. John Denver's story, this day in history, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories and now it's time for a segment by Jesse and you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it and this one's just called more cowbell we're high up in the Swiss Alps and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animals, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells, were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958-track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free. And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. Arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, 
now, you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with famed producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Um, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That that was going to be a great track, guys. What's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever! And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was... Um, uh, Randy Brecker put a the, he put a flugelhorn part on it or a trumpet or something in the in the middle part the that part so uh, and we didn't like it nobody nobody in the group liked it you know and so uh, erased that track so I said hey I want to do I want to do a triangle in that part that's what I want I really I hear a triangle in my head and they're like and the the uh, one of the producers, there was three, there was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out, and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said... Uh, Okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, be- a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it, that's it. So it's funny that, uh, you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts, stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. 
Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Marriage on the Mind series with our marriage coach, Deb Olniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and also serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, you can write to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and she'll make sure to get back to you within 24 hours. And today's Marriage on the Mind story is from Emily Harden, who shared her marriage story in the New York Times recently. Her piece was titled, I Planned My Wedding in Five Days, You Could Too. And Emily graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. It was the day before my wedding, and I literally did not have a dress. In 24 hours, all my friends and family would be gathering in the Empire Ballroom. And at this point, my something borrowed was an entire church outfit from my best friend's closet. Was I concerned? Not really, actually. I decided to throw a Hail Mary at my mom and asked if she would make a skirt to match a $10 top I had found at the mall. She did, and it was lovely absolutely lovely but my wedding dress was just one of many things I was not concerned about for example five days earlier which was a Thursday which also happened to be New Year's Eve I was on the phone with the woman who had become my banquet coordinator Uh, The conversation took place about an hour after I got officially engaged as Rob and I were hiking in the hills of Sedona in Arizona. The conversation went like this. Her. (coughs) Excuse me, you are getting married in five days and you are just calling me now? Me. Well, I actually think I'm being quite generous. I just got engaged an hour ago, and you are my very first call. I figured I should work out some logistics before texting everyone. And no, I am not pregnant. Just to make that clear. Her. Well, that is unusual. How many people are you expecting? Me. Um, probably a hundred. Her. (laughs) One hundred people with five days notice? me. 
People do it for funerals all the time. If I underestimate, we will have leftovers. If I overestimate, I'll just make my family eat last. Her. I am not sure how to process this. Okay, let's talk about flowers. Me. <laughs> no, thank you. Her. No flowers? Me. The room is beautiful enough. I don't think anyone will notice. It seems really wasteful. Her. Uh, how about tablecloths and napkin colors? Me. Just whatever is cheapest and most convenient. I don't really care. Her. You don't have colors? Me. Well, um, I guess the only suit my fiance has right now is navy. And he has a pink tie. Everything else is in storage, so I guess we'll go with that for my wedding colors. Navy and pink. Her. Is this a joke? My entire luncheon was planned in an hour. Because Rob Reading, my now husband, and I knew each other for four years and had been dating over the past year, we knew we wanted to spend eternity together. In fact, as a side note, we already had met with our bishops for pre-marriage approval, but had not become officially engaged. And because my husband's maritime work and a transfer from London to the Bay Area, along with me working on the Little Sisters of the Poor Supreme Court case, we figured we had two options in the moment after his proposal. We could get married in a week, or get married in a year. We eagerly decided it was T minus five days to put my theory to the test. So let's people ask, why, why five days? Well, long ago, I became convinced that modern weddings were unnecessarily burdensome. My theory was you could plan a beautiful wedding in a week. The second call I made that day in the desert was to my parents, who told me their prayers were answered. And the third call I made that afternoon was to the Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wasn't exactly concerned about getting a slot of the temple because Tuesday mornings isn't exactly prime time for weddings. So at this point, it was still day one of planning, and I already had my ceremony and my reception site secured. Wedding invitations were sent out a few hours later via text message with a collage of selfies saying, would love to have you come if you can make it. No gifts, just love. I then called in favors from best friends to do photos and hair and makeup and I pulled strings to get performers and an MC for the event. So as the last of six children to get married, not to mention the fact that I've had 13 foster siblings, my parents were not complaining. In addition, the small farm town that I grew up in, literally there were more cows than humans, um, the town was rejoicing that the two of us in our 30s and 40s that we were getting married at all. Okay, to be sure, I acknowledge that five days notice was inconvenient and there were a few people who couldn't make it. But whether it is five days or five years, it would have been inconvenient and there would have been those who would have missed it. And surprisingly, 
there were only a handful of close friends who couldn't make it, which is the same rate as any wedding. And some of the best parts, the total planning time, 26 hours, and that includes me shopping for my dress, and the total cost, $4,500. The result? On January 5th, 2016, was the perfect wedding day. People commented that it couldn't have been more lovely if I had an entire year to plan it. And guess what? Not a single person noticed that we didn't have flowers. In fact, I've even polled a lot of the people at my wedding to ask, hey, did you notice? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't notice you didn't have flowers. Side note. So, as my mother Marilyn said, hallelujah. Hallelujah for putting the relationship above the wedding. Hallelujah for not worrying about complicated logistics. And hallelujah for not having enough time to change your mind. Thank you, mother. Well, Ra kept saying to me throughout the five-day process, what do you want me to do? And I kept telling him there wasn't anything for him to do. And here's why. With each social expectation for weddings, I asked myself two questions. One, does this achieve the goal of making people at my wedding feel loved and appreciated for the role they played in my life? Or two, Will it help strengthen my marriage and the promises that we made to each other? If the answer was no, I didn't waste any more time. I now appreciate applying this to other areas of my life. Now that we're married, I ask myself, is where we go to dinner eternally significant? If not, why argue over it? Or do party favors for the barbecue you're giving matter? Probably not. I say, enjoy the path of least resistance. If it truly represents the most important elements of your life and your relationship, then put time and put energy and put creativity into it. But if not, do yourself a favor and skip the stress. You know, and in all this, Rob also saw the beauty in our very short engagement and the microburst planning period. He said, the longer it plays out, the longer the nuisance. It would have just been an obstacle to starting our life, so why wait? So, you know what? I may not have a $200 gravy boat, and I may have worn an 888 Walmart wedding ring that eventually turned my finger green, but our flowerless navy and pink wedding set the perfect precedent for married life. Elegantly, Simple. And thank you, Emily, for that. And when we come back, we will be joined by Deb Wolniak to talk about weddings, stress, and so much more. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Emily Hardman's story from the New York Times. I plan my wedding in five days. You could, too.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Marriage on the Mind segment. And joining us, as always, is Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach. And Deb, what a great story to hear, and what a, what a fresh and wonderful voice. I almost want to have Emily on a couple of times a year and just play this so anyone going through the tumult of a wedding plan uh, can just maybe just ditch it. Uh, talk about uh, your first impressions when you heard this. Well, it is refreshing. That's the key word there because so many couples get tied up in knots, literally, <laughs> about planning a wedding that is there to, you know, maybe it's been a dream of somebody for a long time, but ultimately when that wedding is done and they're spending an average of 35000 on a wedding now in America. Um, Deb, I, hold on a second, Deb. You said 35000 is the yeah. average? Yes, that's the average. It does include our big cities like New York at 78, Chicago at 60, and L.A. at 44. But, you know, the reality is most couples are spending around ten grand. That is the goal. But even then, for some folks, that is a huge stretch. And to have couples that are having 200 guests or so, that is a big responsibility. And let me tell you, when that's done and the honeymoon's over, your reality is going to set in. Um, this is a commitment I made for the rest of my life. And what do I have to show up in wedding? Some awesome pictures, some great memories. Absolutely. Those are all things that are important. But what did you do financially that's going to set you ahead or back at the starting line of your marriage? And, and Deb, you know, coming into the marriage, this first crisis point, I actually think the wedding is the first crisis point. And so if you two learn how to negotiate through that crisis point, my wife and I did it fast like this. We did it cheap because we just said we are not incurring debt to go yes. into the future of our life. And as, you, as we've talked about, Deb, finances is one of the key strains on a marriage. What oh. a crazy way and what a crazy precedent to set for your marriage. How are you going to handle other crisis points? The first house comes up. You want to keep up with the Joneses. So you get a house you can't afford, so on and so forth. So right. talk about, as a marriage coach, how this is an opportunity for a good coach uh, to come between a couple and have them think about the long view of marriage and these other crisis financial points that come. Because from a car to a house and to vacations, where right. and how we spend our money on those three things can right. either lead to financial ruin or to financial health. And we know what happens to marriages that are financially healthy. They have a right. better shot. Yes. They do, and that you're on the same page for those things. So I'm going to challenge folks that are listening to, hey, yes, have a designer wedding, one that fits your pocketbook, your lifestyle, and your goals. That's an important lesson. But also have a designer marriage. So many people go into the act of getting married that they don't consider how their relationship stage is at and really knowing where the other person is at when you make that, let's face it, business decision for life. You would not go into a partnership with a business without checking out the other person's motives and goals first. And to know where that other per person is at and that you're on the same page. Why would you go into a lifelong commitment for marriage and not check those things out? I believe there's a lot of people that have a great, great love for each other that don't take the time to do the double checks before they walk down the aisle. And don't you want to know that you know that you know why you're marrying that person? The good, the bad, and the ugly. The things that really help us identify, none of us are perfect. But I am willing and ready 
to make that commitment to that individual come hell or high water because this is my person that I'm going to team with for the rest of my life. And I love this person. Let's not forget about that. The second you throw the wedding ring, engagement ring, I'm sorry, on your finger is the second that most couples turn off the relationship building power and go into action mode. I got to get this thing and this and this. And you'll see it with a lot of brides. They just go into the zone sometimes with their their mothers that they just get so involved in the wedding. They forget about the relationship. They come to the day and that bride is on one end of the aisle or the, you know, wherever you're getting married at and the groom's at the other and she's going or he's going, oh my gosh, I hope this works. And if you think you're thinking that right now and you're planning your wedding, you need to stop and make sure you have a coach that can come alongside you and do some of that premarital coaching that is so, so important. I will always say prepare and enrich is one of the number one ways in 30 minutes that you can find out where your strength areas are and where your challenge areas are so you as a couple can go through this lesson plan of six weeks and know where you're at, know exactly how you're going to use the tools on relationship wellness to build your relationship so you can have the relationship everybody else envies because they want the same thing too whether they tell you or not. It's not about the car you drive or the house that you have or 2.5 kids. It is about a solid relationship that you can come home to and feel that safety and warmth and love. And that is something we all crave. And no dollar is going to get you there. You have to work on it yourself. And Deb, you talk a little bit about, in our notes, about the social media aspect of this and how appearances versus reality is intruding into all of our lives. And let's face it, nobody puts a, a bad experience on Facebook. And everybody's right. looking to see if they can outdo or outgame the next person on social media. And so in some respects, costs have probably amped up because people are competing against one another for the superior oh. wedding, the better photo, the better picture. This actually harms relationships. I, I can't wait to see the 10-year and 20-year studies of Facebook on human psychology. But talk about how it might affect and disrupt a marriage. I'll give you one very good example why this came up. I was told the other, I have not seen this footage, but there was a couple that was getting engaged, and the gentleman was so nice to be able to maybe have his friend from the bushes tape and take pictures and make sure the video was ready so they could put that up on Facebook afterward. And as he got down on one knee and asked this girl to marry him, the first thing she said, is there a camera? Is there a video? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there is. Oh, that's great. Um, can we redo this? I mean, she took the moment away from him, and he was so patient with her. They did it 30 times. 30. Why? Because they wanted that perfect moment. But the crazy thing is they'll never get it because that moment was taken away by image. And I'm going to tell you what. I know a lot of people are going with that right now because they want to outdo their friends. You have nothing when you do that. Nothing. People do not understand what love is anymore. They don't understand relationship. They're getting into that social media and the front, what you're wearing, what you're doing, where you're going, takes, takes precedence over true relationship. And part of that is intimacy and vulnerability. If you cannot be truly honest with your future spouse or your spouse, you need to get help to run the marathon that marriage is. It's not a sprint. It's not a photo. It's not a video. It is about you and your partner with the raw naked truth 
on the fact that you have to grow your relationship and you are the only two that can do it. That's it. It's if a, you don't know what that means, you have a problem. You need to get some help. It's so true, Deb. And by the way, I was at a, a Tom Petty concert about a month ago, and, and Jesse was at the same show. And it was so irritating. My wife and I are finally like, there's couples all around us, and they're holding, the th- they're holding up their camera. And I'm going, can you just watch a concert? Can you just experience something together? Do you have to be in it? And posted to your friends how lucky you are and how unlucky they are. It's real. It's it's crazy, Deb. That the, what people are doing with their own lives—they're turning their own lives into movies. And look right. at movie stars' lives. It doesn't end well. So why do you want this kind of fame, Deb? We love the we love the coaching. Thanks for that note. And as always, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to what you have next week for us. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. Our marriage coach. And she also happens to serve on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. This has been her life's work, and she's our marriage coach here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. When you hear that music, it's time for a final thoughts. And this can be a eulogy, a remembrance of someone important in your lives or an American life who died. And today we have a final thoughts for you. Delbert Earl Fincher Jr., 86 years old, passed away in May at his home in Brandon, Miss- passed away at his home in Brandon, Mississippi. He was born on November 2, 1930 in Marlowe, Oklahoma. No, he was not someone famous or a person people would recognize, but he lived in ways that everyone who knew him took notice of. At 86 years old, he joined the greeting team at his church, Pine Lake, here in Mississippi, and was there every Sunday in his wheelchair with his wife of 59 years, Peggy. And today we're going to listen in on some of the funeral service. Here is Dr. Chip Henderson, the pastor of Pine Lake Church, at the start of the funeral service. The title of our program says a celebration of life. Hey, we have, we have a celebration today because we hadn't seen the last of Mr. Earl. We're going to get to see him again. And uh, we've come today to celebrate that. And as I look around this room, and I uh, just want to say to you guys who are here today as friends, thank you. All of us have memories of Mr. Earl. All of us could stand up here and tell stories for the rest of the day and, and maybe for the rest of the week. I remember his servant spirit, cutting grass at the church or fixing my lawnmower one time. And, and I tell people often that, you know, uh, you, you preach your funeral service while you're living. Now remember this, you, you preach your funeral while you're living. Sometimes people come up to me and they say, man, that was a good funeral. And I say, it's because that person lived a good life. It's, e- it's easy. Some people come up and say, man, that was, that was a rough funeral. It's because they didn't give us much to work with, right? <laughs> 
Mr. Earl gave us plenty to work with. And so we come today with sad hearts. But we come today with glad hearts knowing he lived well. And so we, we miss him, but we honor him. You preach your funeral while you're living. Well said. Now here's Dr. Jeff Holland who followed Pastor Chip in this service. If you're like me, you may have thought that this day would never come for Earl Fincher. Earl cheated death so many times that we thought he was going to outlive us all. And I literally thought he had cheated death one more time. This past Monday morning, a week ago today, I got a text message from Pam and she said, Hey, Daddy's declining rapidly. We would love for you to come over and and pray. Mom would love for you to come over and pray over him. And so I went over there and we got together and sure enough, he was unresponsive. And I literally thought that at any minute they were going to tell me he's gone till the next morning. And so then I, I get right outside their house and I finally get a text from Pam and she says, Daddy's sitting up in the bed eating breakfast. And so I said, well, would it be okay for me to come in and visit with him? And she said, absolutely, please come. And so I went in the house, and they took me back to the bedroom. And there he was, sitting up in the bed, finishing a McDonald's biscuit that somebody had brought to him. And then after he finished those biscuits, he said, where's my donut? (laughs) And he shared a donut and a cup of coffee with me. One of the first things he said to me was, Jeff, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to tell Larry Stagey that I'm probably not going to be at my post Sunday morning. And I said, Mr. Earl, I'm not going to tell Larry a thing. Because what I saw yesterday and what I see today, you're liable to be there on Sunday morning. Well, he had the last word on that, and he was right. Let me ask you, how many people do you know are getting approved for serving with children when they are 83 years old? Earl did. 2014, just three years ago at 83, he signed up to serve in our children's ministry sports camp. And then in April of of this year, at 86 years of age, Earl Fincher responded to the call of our church to make room in his heart for more people. And he did so by signing up, 86 years old, by signing up to serve on our greeter team. And less than two weeks before he died, he was at his post, in his scooter, at the equipping hall entrance, making people feel welcomed as they came for worship. Earl's hardest service, well, it marked his entire life. But folks, this is not just something that Earl had learned to do in his old age. As a younger man, when Pine Lake was located on Spillway Road, as Pastor said, many times he would take his lawnmower up to the church, and for years he mowed the grass at the church. He was known by the children there as the candy man as they knew that he had some sweet treats in his pocket, and whenever they came to church, he would always bless them with some candy. And I've thought a lot about the way that Earl Fincher served. 
And it occurred to me that there were two qualities of his life. And there are going to have to be two qualities of any person's life who's going to be devoted to serving others. Quality number one is he has surrendered. He has surrendered. I remember the story of when King David was about to die and he was about to hand the kingdom over to his son Solomon. The last word, some of the last instructions that David gave to Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9 were this, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind. To serve God with a whole heart and a willing mind implies that you've already surrendered to God. To let Him lead your life. And so I asked Earl on Tuesday morning, Earl, when did you open your heart to Jesus? When did you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? And Earl shared with me it happened when he was about junior high school age. And he told me that he had turned from his sin and he had trusted Christ as his Savior and he had surrendered his, his life to Him. Folks, that was about 73 years ago when Earl committed his life to Jesus Christ. And so if you do anything for 73 years, chances are you're going to get pretty good at it. Jeff shares the second quality Earl had that helped him serve others. But there was a second quality needed if you're going to serve others, and that is selflessness. A selflessness about you. Serving others doesn't always happen when it's convenient for you. Serving others doesn't always fit in with your time schedule. Or when you think it ought to take place. 1 Peter 4.10 reminds us to use whatever gift we have received to serve others. Whatever gift the Holy Spirit has given us, we're to use that gift to employ it in service to other people. And to do this requires an attitude that says, put others first. Karen shared with me just the other day that she could never remember a single time in her life when she needed her daddy and she let him know and he wasn't on his way to help her he was always making sure that he did everything he could to serve and to bless his family he was a hard worker Jordan his oldest granddaughter shared this she said in her 29 years her granddaddy showed up at every recital every ball game or anything his grandkids were involved in. And then it didn't stop with that generation. His great-grandkids can say the same thing of him. Just about a week before he died when he was so sick, Earl was sitting at the ballpark cheering his Joshua on in his baseball game. Selflessness. He finished off with what Earl would have desired for those at his service. In a very real sense, Earl didn't want this day to happen. He said, just let UMC come and pick up my body and let that be done. He didn't want to have this gathering. And I told the family, this isn't for him. This is for you. But I believe that if some way Earl could 
speak to us right now, he would say this, don't make a fuss about me. Tell everyone about my Jesus. He's the one who made my life worth living. You see, Earl knew the joy of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that would be Earl's desire for you today. So, I close. And as I close, I'd like to read the scripture the family chose for today. They sent this to me in a text on Friday. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the two verses that they chose on the screen. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Everything that Earl did, every way that he ever served, every gift he ever gave, every project he ever tackled, it wasn't Earl. It was the power of God working through him. And there you have it. Earl Fincher. Just a guy next door. But not really. Surrender and selflessness. Hard work and always showing up. Always being there for the kids, then the grandkids, then the great-grandkids. This is Our American Stories, Earl Fincher's story. Mm ¶¶